0: All right. Hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. Open up to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter one still, book of Deuteronomy. It's the fifth book in your Bible. So if you start flipping from the front, front, you'll get there real quick. If you're using the Bibles there on the chairs there, around you, page 113 is where you're going, page 113. So we're going to be looking at these verses this morning. Now, I want to take this brief moment to, to kind of let you know how, how we're going to go through Deuteronomy. If you've been with us for a while and we've done some other Old Testament books that um, we, we went through like Judges or Leviticus or um, things like that, we, we, we do them a little differently than we would, say, Romans, which we finished back in the, in the spring, partly because of how they're written, partly because of the type of literature they are. So we've got a reading plan out there that, or it's online, you can do either one, but it tells you each, each week what the verses that we're going to try to cover are that week, Track A will help you just get through the book of Deuteronomy so that you're just reading through Deuteronomy, getting familiar with it. Track B is, is verses and, and, and sets of verses that correspond to the verses we're looking at in the sermon, right? So track B is, hey, they're going to talk about this that happened in Numbers, so here's Numbers, or this gets quoted in the New Testament, so here's that. That's what track B is, to, to help you see how Deuteronomy impacts all these different areas. But I'm, there's gonna be many times where we're gonna cover large chunks of verses, but we're not necessarily gonna be looking at every single one of those verses. There may be times where I do, I do a lot of summary, where I'm gonna say, hey, in this section, this is what's going on, and then because I wanna focus in on a certain, certain part of that verse or, or those sets of verses. Or there may be sometimes like um, Deuteronomy 23.1 is an example of this, where it's just not a good verse to preach, Like, we would cover it if we're teaching, and you would ask questions about it. But Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1 doesn't lend itself very well to preaching. And, and it's not that I want to shy away from hard verses, it's just that's the kind of verse that's probably best covered in the context of a conversation where you can, you can dialogue about some of those things. But what we will do with things like Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 1, rather than covering it specifically, then there's, there's other things that fall into the same category, and so we will cover the principle under which it falls. Just curious, did anyone look up Deuteronomy? You know. You know now, don't you? You know now. Okay. So um, that's kind of how we're approaching it. so (laughs) I was trying to watch your faces to see who did, and and y'all held it in pretty good. So... Maybe one of you back there was turning a little bit red with a little smile, but I may have been misreading that. All right, so that's kind of what's going to happen this morning. You're going to see that we're going to give some, some attention really to chapter 1, verse 6 through 8, and then I'm going to fly through some of the rest of the verse, and maybe I'm not going to hit on it as much as you think we should, but part of that is I know like in this morning's verses, as we get toward the end, that same topic's going to come back up later, so I'm going to have an opportunity to be able to hit those, some of those topics later on as well. So it's going to feel different. It's different than a topical series. It's also, different than how we preach through a letter of the new testament when every word in that letter it's building on one another whereas this has a lot of narrative it tells stories or when we get to the law section not every law is going to be worth covering in the context of a sermon but we can cover maybe some of the general principles so that's kind of how we're going to go about it this this uh as we go through it so here's where we're going this morning a little longer of a bottom line this morning but to get you thinking if the people of god are going to possess the promises of God, they must obey the precepts of God. If the people of God are going to possess the promises of God, they must obey the precepts. Precepts, just another word for commandments, but I liked the P, obviously, right? And so if the people of God are going to possess the promises of God, they must obey the commandments. If it works better for you that way, because you know that word better than the commandments of God. But precepts, commandments, same thing. So we're going to break that out. So we're going to see how that, that kind of comes into play. If the people of God are going to possess the promises of God, they must obey the precepts of God. And then at the end, I'm going to need to give some qualifications because a bottom line like this makes me uncomfortable. So as I'm working this through and I'm going, when I come up with things like this, my goal is, I do want you to remember what we cover. That's, that's the goal of a teacher for sure. But I also sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make it memorable, so the, the p's, the rhymes, sometimes. But my main and first primary goal is I want to be able to summarize the theology of the passage. I want this statement to be able to reflect what's here, so that if you have this statement stuck in your head or written down, you'll be able to go back to the verses we look at, and you should be able to use this as an outline or to help you think through what this passage is saying. So I'm not just coming up with stuff making it up and hoping that it sticks in these verses. But when I, when, I, when I settled on this, I'm going, ooh, ooh, that, that, that kind of rubs me a little bit because I like, I really like to lean on God's sovereignty, and I really like the gospel of grace, that God gives me what I don't deserve, and I can see how something like this could very quickly become works-based, um, you know, driven by I've got to do this in order to gain that, and and so I want to unpack that for you because it, it's definitely there and it's not foreign to the, to the Old Testament. Well, I, want to, I want to help us understand what it means. Uh, long enough? All right. So I got some more feedback, not the first time, that sometimes I don't leave these bottom lines up very long. And so some of you who are taking notes, you don't have time to write them down. But did I call you? Did that embarrass you? Oh, okay. I take feedback even from my, my daughters. All right, so here's what we're gonna see first. Take possession of the promise. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter one. Let's look at verse six and seven. Take possession of the promises. So you remember, this is Moses. He's now in front of this new generation of people who are about to go into the land that God had promised. Now he's re-giving them the law and he's calling for them to commit themselves anew to the law. Why? Because their parents and grandparents have not uh, survived the wilderness. Their parents and grandparents have been wiped out because that's the generation who disobeyed God, who did not trust God, did not believe Him, and so they wandered in the desert for the 40 years. That's what we looked at, kind of talked about last week. But they're standing on the cusp. Now, I told you Deuteronomy is really seven sermons of Moses. The first sermon starts here, verse 6, and it's going to go all the way through almost the end of chapter 4. And then we'll get the second sermon that'll start uh, with the, the end of chapter four and going all the way to chapter 26. But we're gonna be in this first sermon for a while. So this is now Moses giving this sermon and he's going to, to help them think back through some of their history that has led them up to this point. So the words that we're about to read is Moses now recounting for this generation that stands before him, here's how we got to this point. Here's some of the things that had happened. So Verse six. The Lord our God said to us at Horev, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country, and in the lowland, and in the Negev, and by the seacoast of the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. And we'll stop there for a moment. So this would have been, this, this starts to occur um, in Numbers chapter 10 and 11 is where you see this history start to pick up. Your reading plan should capture that. But they've been at the mountain. Remember Mount Sinai is also called Horev, Mount Horev. Deuteronomy is going to use that more often than not, but it's the same mountain. It's just called different things by different people. So Deuteronomy calls it Horev. All right? So he's, they're, they're, they've been at that mountain. They've now been out of Egypt for, for a little over a year at this point, but they had spent some time at that mountain. Lots of things had happened at that mountain. At that mountain is where God had met with Moses and they had received the law, this new covenant called the, the covenant of Moses. That's what we call it, right? But this was given to the people of Israel to help them understand who is this God that has just delivered us from Egypt. How do we live in the context of his presence? How do we live in the context of his grace giving us what we don't deserve? How do we live in the context of the redemption that we've just experienced? And so that's, that's some of the stuff that took place at that mountain. But after a time, God says to Moses, it's time for you to move on. So he tells them, he commands them actually. This is not a suggestion, it's not a request, it's a command. You go and you take, you turn and take your journey. And he says, go to the hill country of the Amorites. All right, let's pull up a map. It's a little small, but I'm, I, I think it'll, it'll accomplish the purposes this morning. What you're looking at here is the, the, the place of Israel. This is an Old Testament biblical map, right? So, that the body of water there at the top left, that's the Mediterranean Sea. The body of water that you, you see kind of right there in the middle, that's the Dead Sea. Right? And then that little pond looking thing, if you go straight up from the, the Dead Sea, that's the Sea of Galilee. So this is stuff where Jesus oftentimes would have things happen. Right, So that's kind of where we are. Right? We, we talked last week, the, the people of Israel are just kind of sitting right across from Jericho, right here above the Dead Sea, just, just right there as Moses is giving the story. But he's talking about a time when the people were down here. And they were right on the cusp of going into the land. And he talks about the hill country of the Amorites. That's right here. That would have been a mountainous region. He says, and to their neighbors in the Arabah, that would just be right here to the right. That would just kind of be a dry region right there. He talks about the Negev, which would kind of be a desert, a southern desert region. It's right there, right? So he's he's talking to people who at the time, they're right here and he's telling them, go into the land go in into the hill country of the Amorites. And we'll get into the story of the spies more as Moses recounts that. But, but that's kind of where we're at right here. Now, you, you see hill country of the Amorites? That's significant. This is back in Genesis chapter 15. Now, Genesis chapter 12 is when we get introduced to a guy named Abraham, where he's called Abram first and then his name gets changed to Abraham right? And so this is a guy who is plucked right out of the people of, of Mesopotamia, right out of the city of Babylon, and, and, and right in the midst of a great rebellion, the Tower of Babel. And God says to this man, he makes some promises. I'm going to bless you with descendants. You're going to have offspring. We'll come back to that in just a moment. He talks about giving them uh, him a land, all right? In chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, he says, I'm going to give you land, and then he's going to define that land. We're going to talk about land here in just a moment as well. But there comes a point in chapter 15 where Abram hasn't received these promises yet. He has no son of his own yet. And so he's he's wondering, how is God gonna do this? And he had kind of made some some things happen with with Hagar. And so you got Ishmael. but, But one of the things that God is gonna help Abram see is, no, it's gonna come from you. The son is gonna come from you and Sarai, right? And so he takes, in chapter 15 of Genesis, God takes Abram outside of his tent and he tells him, look up. Look at the stars and count them if you even can, right? And that's that that promise that he's given him, right? Well, we're gonna come back to that one in just a moment too. But at the end of that conversation, what, what God does with Abram as he makes his covenant is he puts Abram into a deep sleep where he's still able to see visions. And so he gives Abram this vision. And in this vision, there's there's these animals that have been cut because in order to start a covenant, you had to cut the covenant, right? Which means you spilled blood, you cut an animal, you sacrificed an animal, and that means the covenant was cut. That was the beginning of the covenant. Unless blood has been spilled, the covenant has not been cut. It's not been started. And then typically the the way they would do this in their day is if you're making a covenant with someone, which is an agreement, you do this, I do that, then the two of you would walk through those those halves of the animals together as you're making those vows. And it's like saying to one another, if I break my end of the the covenant, let it be to me like it is to these animals, right? But in this vision, God puts Abram to sleep. He's not able to do anything. God himself appears in a vision as this this pot and, and he himself goes through the thing and he tells Abram some things in the midst of this he says starting in chapter 15 verse 12 as the sun was going down a deep sleep fell on Abram and behold dreadful and great darkness fell upon him then the Lord said to Abram know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years Egypt has not happened yet for the nation of Israel The nation of Israel has not even been birthed yet. This is God telling Abram, there's gonna come a people from you. Those people are gonna be afflicted for 400 years in a country that's not their own. Verse 14, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, Egypt, and afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. If you read the account of the Exodus, you will find that one of the things that they did on their way out was they collected from some of the people, gold earrings, necklaces, all kinds of things that they would then later use to, to, to build the ark, uh, the ark and the, the different pieces of furniture for the tabernacle. Verse 15, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. And look at verse 16, and they, who, your people, the nation that comes from you, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So now, back in in Deuteronomy, what God is telling them when they're at this land Uh, The mountain is now go into the country of the Amorites. It's time. But what God had told Abram all those years back, centuries before, was they're going to come back in the fourth generation because the iniquity, which is a specific Hebrew word for an aspect of sin, right? The iniquity of the Amorites is not complete yet. In other words, God's going to let that build and build and build. And then there's going to come a point where in God's eyes, it's complete, and then it will be time for the people to take possession of the land. That's what was happening when, when Moses is recounting this time that, that, that uh, we're talking about. So the iniquity of the Amorites. Now, let me, let me say this. So God's telling the people, go in and, and, and take this land. There's already people living in the land. This ties into modern day stuff. There's already people living in the land. So the argument today is that some of the people who might find their, their, their heritage traced back to Amorites, Hittites, you know, Jebusites, the people that were their Canaanites, they all ultimately get, they all get driven north into the area of Syria and Lebanon, which even today is still north of the, the place of Israel, right? So there's still, and then there's still some people there, the, the, they would call themselves, or sometimes some of us call them the Palestinian people, right? And they, they trace their lineage back to some of those other people, and so they feel like they have a right to the land. And the debate is this, do they have a right to the land, and did the people of Israel come and steal the land from them? That's, that's the political debate. It's more than a political debate, but that's, that's how it oftentimes gets phrased, and in there's infighting. But here's where that all kind of get started. Here's what we have to remember. The people are, of Israel are not being sent into the land to steal what's not theirs. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Psalm 24.1. God has told Abram, he's the creator of all things, so the, the, the land, the earth, belongs to God. God has told Abram in that, that vision that we just saw back in Genesis 15, and even before that, when he led them to this land, I'm gonna give you this land, We'll talk land in a moment. But this is God, the one who is the creator of all things, who possesses all things, who owns all things, who is saying to a particular group of people, I'm giving this to you. Now, your people are gonna take a break for 400 years. They're gonna be afflicted in another country, but I'm gonna bring them back to this land. But not now, because the iniquity of the Amorites are not complete. So one of the things we have to keep in mind is all people everywhere, whether or not you're part of the people of God, you are still accountable to God. All people everywhere, where? Every nation, every people group, whether they believe in God or not, whether they're Buddhist, atheist, Taoist, whether they're Muslim, whether they're Mormon, whether they're whatever, all people, I threw that one in because of a conversation this morning, there's all people everywhere are accountable to God because we are all created by God. So when it comes to a, 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 a situation like this where the people are going to take the lamb, When God says the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete, he intends to judge the people, the Amorites, for what they're doing. He judges Egypt for what they did to to the people while they were afflicted. And yet it was still part of God's plan to have his people go into Egypt. There's this tension that takes place where God uses people. He can raise up kings and tear them down. He can raise up kingdoms and tear them down. He can install people in certain positions of authority for a time. And they may not be God worshipers. And yet God can use them as instruments in his hand to accomplish his purpose. And yet at the same time, hold them accountable to him for the evil iniquity that they did. Don't try to make sense of it and reconcile it. There is a necessary tension that must be held here. God can do all of that, and yet people are still responsible before God. So the people are not going in to steal. They're going in to take possession of what God has given them, okay? All right, so let's look at that. Verse eight now, verse eight. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. So this is the command that was given to them back when they were originally at the, at the, the border of the, the land. And now they're standing there again. So Moses is reminding them, this is the command. God says, I have set the land before you. I've prepared it for you. I've given it to you. I've set it before you. So go in and take possession. The land had already been promised. Abram had received the promise. There's this this area that I'm gonna give to you. The, The land had been promised, but it had not yet been possessed by the people who had been promised to And now, several hundred years later, God is commanding them, now go in and take possession of the land that has been previously promised to you. So what I'm getting at here, and I hope you're starting to see, is sometimes God is going to promise things, but you don't necessarily come into possession of those promises at the moment he promises it. Don't miss the fact that God says, I have set the land before you. Go and take possession of it. They're going to take possession of something that God has set before them. If they try to go and take possession of this land before God had set it before them, they would not be victorious. They would not possess what God was giving them. In fact, we're gonna see that in a a few sections later as God recounts that. That happened. But sometimes God makes his promise And that promise doesn't come into the possession of the person who's receiving the promise until later. And at some point in that future, God is gonna command that person or the people, take possession of what I've promised you. I've said it before you, but not a moment before. And I wanna just pause for a moment and throw this out there. Perhaps some of us are chasing things, trying to take possession of something, trying to claim that God is giving this to me or God wants me to have this, and yet he's not promised it to us and so we're trying to take possession of something that he is not setting before us and it's frustrating to us and we're not being able to get it or even though we get it we're not satisfied as we thought we would be perhaps that's because it's not God setting that before you or if he is he's he's not commanded you to go and take possession of it yet i'm being real nebulous because I, I, I'm just gonna trust that the Spirit's gonna apply that to you if it needs to be applied. And we'll come back to that. All right, so go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, okay? So that the promise was given to Abraham, passed on to Isaac, passed on to Jacob. All right, let's talk about land. Um, land gets real political. We're gonna stay out of the politics for a moment and just talk about where does this idea of land come from? Oftentimes we think that, me too, but we, we think that the land just shows up with Abraham. It does not show up with Abraham. The land with Abraham gets limited. But what I want you to see is as we consider the context of, of where history is, is playing out in biblical history, as we consider the covenants, the covenant made with Adam in the garden, which included things like this, Genesis 128, God blessed them And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This was God creating Adam and Eve who were made in his image. Part of what's included in the image is you represent God. Part of representing God is to rule over the the rest of creation. And to be fruitful and multiply is they were in the garden. The garden was a limited area. But God gave the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Earth. The Hebrew word behind earth is eretz, sometimes also translated land. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. The goal, the intent of God was not that Adam and Eve stayed in the garden, but that Adam and Eve would be in the garden, and from the garden they would then multiply and fill the earth because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. God does not just possess one limited area of land. He possesses all of it. So the intent was God's representatives, his image bearers, would go and fill the earth as they represented God over all of creation. And the goal would then ultimately be they would live under God's rule, under God's kingdom over all the earth, the land, the Eretz. So there's land involved in the covenant with, Ab- uh, with Adam and Eve. That covenant then gets reestablished with Noah because you remember that the the people were rebellious and they were wicked and they were sinning all the time. So God wipes them out except for Noah and his family. Noah gets off the ark and God reestablishes that covenant and he gives them the same command as he gives to Adam and Eve. There's just a few differences in the covenant because now, whereas this covenant was given before sin to Adam and Eve, Before sin entered into the physical creation, now God's reestablishing the covenant with Noah in a world that's been impacted by sin. So he does say, though, and he blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Same Hebrew word, eretz, sometimes also translated land, right? So the command for Noah's sons is, hey, you are to not stay here. You are to multiply and fill the earth. But they didn't do that, and we know that because the Tower of Babel chapter, Genesis chapter 11, all these people are congregating together in one place, trying to build a name and a place for themselves. So they're still not doing what God intended them to do, which was to be fruitful and multiply and fill all the earth. So the idea of land is, is there already. What happens when we get to Genesis 12 with Abraham is that the land now gets limited. It gets borders, right? Sometimes those borders um, are hard to nail down based on what was said in the scripture, based on where it is today, but there's clearly some borders given. The idea is not simply that God is no longer going to expect that his people fill the earth or, or, or have his kingdom only operate in one section of land. The idea is just like the garden was a microcosm. It was a small picture of the larger story. Here is what life is like in the garden. We live in the presence of God. We are provided for and protected by God. We're gonna be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the, the goal would be that all of the earth comes under the kingdom and authority of God. Okay, but sin keeps from that happening. So now God is doing something that he does often where he's going to use something that's smaller in nature but represents the bigger story. The land that he now limits to Abraham and says, these are your boundaries, are meant to be a microcosm in which a particular group of people, the people of Israel, who are directly ruled by God at this point, so they're under a theocracy, Okay, we don't have that today. He's under a theocracy and they're gonna be living in this land in relationship with God and the goal is that these people are to be a light to the rest of the nations. Why? Because the rest of the nations, I showed you this last week from Deuteronomy 4, part of the law is that they will see righteousness and understanding and wisdom in it. As the people of Israel relate to their God and the people of the other nations see this, they're gonna marvel at what a righteous people and laws they have, what a righteous God they have. And they're going to be drawn to the fact that this God's presence is with his people. And then the goal is that all these nations who have been rejecting God, this will go back to Deuteronomy 32, eight and nine. Remember where God, at the Tower of Babel, he scatters all the nations and he inherits himself one nation. He inherits the nation of Israel. But all those other nations, he puts under the rule of these lesser spiritual beings that he created, sons of God. But the plan is that God is going to inherit them all back. God's kingdom will ultimately be over all the earth. So the land with Abraham and therefore then gets passed on to the covenant with Moses that we're reading about in Deuteronomy, it's limited. It's meant to be a microcosm. It's not meant to be the only place that God's kingdom dwells because you have later on in the outflow of covenants, you have a new covenant that comes. Part of what happens in that new covenant, instead of God creating a place like he did in the garden at creation and then a people, he does it in reverse. He creates a new people that will ultimately live in a new creation. Because Jesus, Jesus comes and he starts that new covenant. He's the firstborn of a new creation. 2 Corinthians five seventeen: if anyone isn't in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. See, God is creating a new creation, but he starts with a new people first, which is what he's doing now. And ultimately that will culminate in the new heavens and the new earth, which is ultimately where we go. Our goal is not heaven. Our goal is to be living in the new heavens and the new earth, which is where all of this culminates because of the new covenant. So the land that we're going to keep reading about, which is going to come out out often throughout the Old Testament, is a small, limited area meant to be a microcosm it's meant to be a small picture depicting the larger story what happens in this land under the rule of god is supposed to be happening across all of the world and ultimately will be in christ because christ is the king not just of israel but of all the earth Okay. So, there's a little bit about the land, but I don't want you to think that all of a sudden this land is just coming up with Abram. It has been around since the very beginning of creation. By the way, other microcosms, we've talked about this in some class settings, other microcosms would be the tabernacle, the temple, the way people worship in the tabernacle and the temple. They're just temporary things meant to depict a greater thing. The garden itself was a temple. Just know what that said. Okay. Let's keep going. All right, so first you got to take possession of that. Verses six through eight, he's commanding them, go and take possession of the promise. But now we're going to get a glimpse as Moses shifts gears a little bit. He's still talking about some history leading up, but he's now going to start to teach them, what does it look like to live in light of the promise? You see, you can't go and take possession of God's promise and then live however you want. You can't be redeemed by God and then live like you were redeeming yourself. You must live in the context of his grace. We have to understand what does it look like for me to live in the context of being redeemed when I never did anything to, to, to accomplish that. God did everything to accomplish that. How do I then live in the context of he's giving me all that I have and all that I need and more? How do I live in, the, in light of the promise? So in this case, we go to verse 9. At that time I said to you, I'm not able to bear you by myself. This is Moses speaking The Lord your God has multiplied you and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of the heaven. May the Lord the God of the fathers make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he has promised you. How can I bear myself, by myself, the weight and burden of you and your strife? So we've got something here where where Moses is realizing these people have grown. Right? And so you can read this. There's two accounts of this. Um, this is likely coming from Numbers 11, given the history, but there's something similar in Exodus 18 with Jethro, his father-in-law, gives him some advice. Right? But this seems to be more tied to the history that's happening in Numbers chapter 11. But he says, you're too numerous. I, I can't continue to bear you. And he makes a statement in verse 10, the Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of the heaven. And I just want to show you the promises made to Abram Back in Genesis 12, I will make you a great nation, reiterated in chapter 15, and he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Moses is acknowledging God is faithful to his promises. God has brought to bear what he has promised to Abraham. You are already as numerous as the stars of the heaven. Therefore, I can't bear you on my own. And then he, he pronounces his blessing and may the, the Lord God of your fathers make you a thousand times as many. So it's not so much the number that, that he's bothered by. It's this. How can I bear by myself the weight and burden of your strife? It's the people. It's not so much the number. It's the people who have strife among them. And so, Here's what Moses does. Choose uh, choose for your your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. And you answered me, the thing that you have spoken to us is good for us to do. That's going to be important when we look at next week. They agree to what Moses was doing. They agree it's good for you to designate people, to to help lead the, the tribes. So I took, verse 15, the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and I set them as heads over you. Commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens and officers throughout your tribes. Verse 16, and I charged your judges. So pause for a moment. He, he's setting up two groups and there may be some overlap between them. He's setting up those who are military commanders. That's what we just read about. Commanders of hundreds, tens, fifties, things like that. But then he shifts to judges. Now your mind's gonna likely immediately go to civil judges. And there's certainly an aspect of that, but I want to remind you of the book of Judges. The book of Judges, the judge is a redeemer. The judge is oftentimes in the book of Judges a military commander. Think Samson, think um, Gideon, right? For for two well-known judges. they, They may have some role in deciding some things among the people, but in the book of Judges, God raises up a judge to deliver the people from those others who were oppressing them. So it could be there's overlap. The judges that he's mentioning here in verse 16 could also be some of the commanders. They could be two separate groups. They could overlap. But he's gonna speak specifically now about civil judging. I charge your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. Okay, pause. So he's charging. He's giving some commands, some instructions. You're to judge righteously. Righteously is based on the righteous character of God. How do I know what righteousness is? Well, it's a good thing that God had already given his law before Moses installed judges and then instructed them to judge righteously. Why? How do they know what's righteous? The law. How do they know what it looks like to judge righteously? They need to know who their God is. How do they know who their God is and what he's like? The law. Because in the law, the character of God, the righteous character of God is revealed. So you want to know, how do I decide in this situation, well, what is God's character? What does he say? The law is their guide. So he's instructing them, you are to judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien. The alien would have been someone who's not a Jewish person, but is either living among the Jews or they're traveling through and they're to get the same righteous standards. That's a big deal in this day. I mean, in this day. It's a hard day too, but it's a big deal in this day that people who were not part of your nation, part of your people group, would get the same righteous standard, the same treatment. God is concerned As his people are living in the land, he is concerned for those who are traveling through, who are widows and orphans, who are oppressed. We'll have plenty of time to get into that later. But he says you're to judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who's with him. Verse 17, you shall not be partial in judgment. So no favoritism. Um... There are some organizations where if you're part of this organization and you appear before a judge, you flash a certain signal. If the judge is part of the same organization, then the judge must rule in your favor regardless of the circumstances. That would be partial judgment. Or, you know, there are some situations where a judge might rule in the favor of someone who's wealthier because they know that's going to benefit them later. Or someone who has political power because they know that's going to benefit them later. And Moses' instruction is, no, you judge with no partial, partiality. You do not, you're not partial in your judging. Everyone gets righteous judgment, regardless of who they are, what they do, what power or position they hold. You shall hear the small and the great alike. So you shouldn't just, and he's not talking about size, but prominence. You should hear those, those cases that, that are not really a big deal and nobody cares about. And you should also hear those ones that they get a high attention like this is a high-profile case, you're gonna hear that one, but you also hear the ones that are low-profile. You don't just gravitate towards hearing one that's gonna make you more prominent in the eyes of the people. You hear the small and the great alike. He goes on and he says, you shall not be intimidated by anyone because the judgment is God's. And so as these judges were judging, Moses' instruction to them is, no one should intimidate you into not judging righteously. If someone's intimidating you, you should still exercise righteous judgment. Why? Because the judgment ultimately belongs to God. He's entrusting these people. He entrusted Moses. Now Moses is entrusting. What's really neat is in uh, Numbers 11, around verse 13, I think it is, you get this, when, when it's kind of describing some of these people, God says to Moses, I'm gonna take some, I'm gonna take some of the spirit off of you and give it to them. I'm gonna take some of the spirit off of you, some of my spirit off of you, and give it to them so that they might be able to do this. That's not necessarily how it works in the New Testament, but that's how it was working in that day. The, the spirit of God would come upon a person in a way that would empower them to carry out the, the, the command and the, the authority of God. And God says, I'm gonna take it off of you and put it on them. Point being this, they are being entrusted by God ultimately to exercise judgment. The judgment ultimately belongs to God. If they're judging righteously, according to God's standard, then the judgment is God's. And so if someone's intimidating them into not judging righteously, they need to remember this is God's judgment. This is what I'm bringing forth. In other words, he's ultimately responsible for it. He's ultimately the one who's going to carry this out. And if I don't give God's judgment, then that's going to be some problem for the judge as well. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. That was just a little small snippet there. We're going to get into judging more, what it, what it looks like to judge righteously and what those righteous standards are. That comes much later. Uh, through Deuteronomy, but he's reminding them, this is what, what happened, this is what I commanded you, go and take possession of the promise, here's how you live in light of the promise, right? So here's, here's where we started this, this morning. If the people of God are going to possess the promises of God, they must obey the precepts of God. So here the people of Israel are standing as Moses recounts their history, standing at the land, entrance of the land, and he commands them, it's not a suggestion, it's not a request, he commands them, go and take possession of the land. I've said it before you. As we're gonna see next week, they don't ultimately do that the first round, right? And it has consequences. But if the people of God are going to take possession of the promises of God, they must obey the precepts, the commands of God, which is why Moses now is going to go through and recount this law for this new generation. Now, I said I needed to qualify some of this because you could be tempted to walk away and say, well, well, one, you might just make up promises that you think God has promised you when he's never actually promised you. So, you. so we've got to deal with that. But you might look at this and go, so I have to do something in order to gain what God is giving. And so you might equate that to salvation, for instance. And you say, see, therefore, I should earn my salvation. I have to go take possession of my salvation. And so here's how I want to start to, to have you think through this. God's sovereignty, by that I mean the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, or the Lord sits enthroned upon the heavens and he does as he pleases. He's sovereign, he's over it all. God's sovereignty, he raises kingdoms and he tears them down. Right? God's sovereignty works in such a way where sometimes there's things that are just gonna happen regardless, right? Sometimes there's things that are just gonna come to pass regardless. He is, he is gonna bring them to pass. But then there are other things in God, in his sovereignty, where it seems to be he, he promises it, but then he still calls his people to obey in order to receive the promise. Not because their obedience earns it, but that's how they operate in faith to receive what God has given. So, for instance, I'm gonna give you three sets of verses in the New Testament. I don't have them up here. I'm thinking of like Philippians chapter one, where Paul says, I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. And of course, he's talking about the redemption that God has started in people that he's gonna ultimately bring to completion, which means our bodies are fully redeemed as well. He says, I'm confident that he who began it is gonna bring it to completion. I hear God's sovereignty in that, that what, what God has started, he will bring it to pass, right? But I go one more chapter later in Philippians, Philippians chapter two, verses 13 and 14. And the second part of verse 13 is where we get that verse, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Which which is Paul not saying earn your salvation, but Paul's saying live it out. Live out your salvation. Live out what you believe, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 14 says, for or because it is God who works in you both to will and to work or to bring about the desire and the ability to carry out the desire. So I hear in that, I hear work it out, obey, right? There's, there's you have gotta live, but then at the same token, right after he, he reminds us, but it's God who brings about the desire to obey and the ability to do so. Right, so there, there's elements there where I'm going, Man, God's made a promise and yet he tells, Paul tells us, work it out, our salvation. So there's something about me experiencing the fullness of what God has. Not that I can do anything to earn my standing before God. But there's something about the way that I, I live my life in obedience to Christ allows me then to receive and experience life to the fullest. Life more abundantly. Or Ephesians chapter one. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then he'll go and he'll list those things. But then by the time you get to chapter 4 of Ephesians, one of the things that we're told by Paul is put off the old man and put on the new which is about how do I live my life as a believer in Christ? I've got to put off the old man and put on the new, which is about living in obedience to Christ. And then when we looked at Ephesians 6, of course, the spiritual armor, we've already been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and yet Paul tells us, put on the armor of God. If the people of God are going to possess, have the fullness of the promises that God has given, they must obey God's precepts. I've got one more for you, Colossians 3. In Colossians 3, some of the things that Paul says, he says things like this, Christ is seated. uh, We've been raised with Christ where he is seated in the heavenly places. So therefore, set your mind on things that are above, implication, where Christ is seated in the heavenly places, and not on things that are below. By the time you get to Colossians 3, I think it's verse 5, he'll say, put to death the things that are of this world. Wait, but I've already been raised and I'm already seated with Christ in the heavenly places and yet Paul has commanded me, I need to put to death some things, I need to wage war. If the people of God are going to possess the promises of God, they must obey the precepts of God. There are times where God in his sovereignty has orchestrated things where he may give me something, but I'm not going to experience or possess the fullness of it unless I obey. So go back to that Philippians verse where I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Well, there's growth that every genuine believer in Christ is going to experience. If you're a genuine believer in Christ, you will ultimately reach that day of redemption. You will ultimately be found standing before Christ on that day when he separates sheep and goats and you're with the sheep. You're going to ultimately be standing on that day and, and, and you're not going to be pushed away from Christ. We're hearing him say, depart, I did not know you. You're going to stand before him. But then the question becomes, what did you experience in this life in between? See, there's there's incidental growth that will take place. It's just going to happen because God will bring about what he promised. But then there's intentional growth. Incidental, God's going to bring it about. Then there's intentional. That's as I obey as I work out my salvation with fear and trembling, as I put to death the things of this earth, as as I, I continue to put off the old man and put on the new man, then I'm experiencing life to the fullest. I'm experiencing, I'm possessing the promises of God in the fullest of it. So if the people of God are going to possess the promises of God, they must obey the precepts of God. If you're wondering why you may be a believer in Christ, but you're still at the same level of maturity you were when you first became a believer and it's been 10, 12, 15, 20 years, obedience is likely what it boils down to. If you're wondering, how come I haven't possessed the promises? How how come I'm not growing in the promises of God for salvation? How come I'm not seeing more fruit in my life because you're not abiding in Christ if you abide in me you'll bear much fruit apart from me you can do nothing abiding carries with it obedience if you're a believer in Christ and you've been stunted in your growth and you're wondering why start with obedience what is that next step of obedience but keep in mind your obedience doesn't win you a prize with God why because Philippians 2 14 for it is God who both works in you to bring about the desire and the ability to obey so we thank God and we ask him to let the spirit of God produce in us the fruit of the spirit. And we ask God to remove calluses where those calluses been. What we did here this morning before, before the teaching time and we're confessing sin and we're repenting, that's daily for the believer. That's daily obedience for the believer. I become aware of sin, I confess it, I call it sin, I repent of it, I go the opposite direction. Lord, replace that. So if I'm having trouble forgiving someone, I ask the Lord, I confess it, I confess it as sin, and then I ask the Lord to help me to forgive. Or if I'm, if I'm angry with someone, I confess it as sin, I'm angry, I call it what it is, and then I ask the Lord instead to, to help me to bless that person. Right? I'm, I'm asking for the opposite. If I'm able to do the opposite or I have a desire to do the opposite, I'm willing to pray for the opposite, there's repentance involved. So if the people of God are going to possess the promises of God, they must obey the precepts of God. So Father, I'd ask that you just let that sit for a moment. That you would let your spirit just ruminate across this room and take your word and apply it to us in the ways that you want us to hear and understand it this morning. There's been some things I've kept vague intentionally, but God, your spirit knows who in this room needs to hear those things and hear them with more specificity. So Spirit of God, I'm asking that you would apply them in that moment. That you would show us where we are not a people that are obeying and help us to do so, we ask in the name of Christ. Amen.